Hey love, what's up? How are you? I'm so, so, so excited for today's guest. Oh my goodness. But before I talk about that, I wanted just to take a moment and sincerely thank every one of you for listening, sharing, downloading, hype girling the So Good Podcast. It has been a journey. It has been an up level in visibility, receiving. It has been something special. And I take this really seriously. I really like it. And I just laugh at the irony of doing an I'm back episode and then needing a couple months to plot out season two. But if you've been a loyal legacy lovebird from day one, it means everything to me. And sometimes it's worth the wait. And if you know me and you know my style, I I rarely make announcements. I'd rather just come in and baffle instead of explaining things. I've learned the hard way not to do that. So for today, we're going to be doing something a little different. I'm bringing Ben Taylor on from Raw Motivations. He is a software narcissist who, through his own really revealing journey and getting into toxic relationships and then realizing, oh shit, I'm the fucking toxic person. Oh my God. He is now diagnosed and working intently on healing these identity fractures of guilt and shame that cause really harmful behavior. So what you're about to listen to is a dialogue between Ben and I, where we talk a little bit deeper on the roots of narcissism, what to do if you feel like, holy shit, I'm in a relationship with someone who's toxic. What am I going to do about this? Who am I in this relationship? And we, we go a little bit deeper into the themes of what creates this personality fracture. So Ben's going to be coming on in a couple minutes. I'm going to link his stuff in the show notes. So he's got an event coming up. You can follow him. I totally, fully, fully vouch. And you know me, I'm picky as fuck. So anyways, we're about to bring him on. So keep on listening and enjoy the show. Hey, Lovebird, it's me, Stephanie, CEO of The Good Love Company and leading relationship expert. You're about to start transforming your love life from the inside out with the So Good podcast. I've been widely considered the leader in the love coaching space and have worked with super achievers all around the world for over six years. Here, you're not going to find cheesy dating tips or fluffy nonsense. No manipulative tactics either, because my work is about understanding behavior, identity, and motivation. Pair that with energetic work, somatic healing, and ooh, your love life is about to get so good. These talks are designed to inspire, provoke, and guide you on your journey home to take you and your love life to heights you've never thought possible. If you're wanting more from your relationships, better connection, hotter sex, self-love tips, and emotional mastery, then stick around. It's about to get so good. I'm glad you're here. All right, everybody. I am so excited today. I have Ben from Raw Motivations. I've been such a fan of his work since I found him on TikTok and he happily agreed to come on the show and share a little bit of insight about the topic that we've talked about a lot, which is narcissistic personality disorder. And the way that I operate as you lovebirds know, is that I'm really down to the root of the issue. Where does this come from? And why is this so prevalent? So I wanted to take a moment to chat with Ben. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. Happy you're yeah. here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I love it. So I wanted just to hop right in and jump right in. One of the videos I saw of yours that made me really need to reach out to you was you speaking so candidly about your journey through 
having a relationship that led you to realize "Mm, this doesn't feel good. And now Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in too deep and I need to take a look. So I would love for the listeners who've never heard you speak yet to kind of share briefly a little bit about what got you into, uh, into your journey. Yeah. So, uh, I didn't really have a clue about narcissism up until like a couple of years ago. And it was something that never crossed my mind. I've actually read books that I've re- reread now that I've been like, oh, there's narcissism in that book. Like it talked about it and I never had a clue. Like it never registered. There was a lot of things that happened in my life kind of leading up to it. A lot of things that just kind of disintegrated, fell apart and that I caused. And the main aspect of that was my relationship with my wife and how that progressed to a place where I was cheating like multiple times over a period of about seven, eight years that we were together. And during that time, it was just something that I didn't know how to stop. It felt like it was just kind of like innate, like it was like one person was here, then the next person was here. And it was kind of like a cycle aspect. And there was an aspect with it that I got to a place where I was just like fed up, but also that I was just like so lost, so confused. Like I remember feeling one time like years ago of like the idea of like, maybe I'm just cursed. Like maybe this is just what's going to be my life. And every year, every two years, like this is just going to happen. And I just have to like live with it the rest of my life. And I started learning about different aspects that didn't necessarily go straight to narcissism, but kind of like hedged around it. And one of the things I started learning early on was like personalities. So like I took a lot of tests. I did it with work because I was involved a lot with work, with working with teams and things like that. So this personality, Myers-Briggs, 16 personalities, and then um, stumbled across Enneagram. And Enneagram is, if you haven't seen it before, it definitely kind of slices a little bit further down than some of those others out there. Um, And started like seeing like, hey, how I interact, how I connect, how I have emotion, all those things are completely different than a lot of people out there. And as I started diving into it a little bit more, I started reading, uh, I got a really good book uh, by Brene Brown, uh, Daring Greatly, that touches on vulnerability and shame. And that was a big aspect of like kind of waking up, you know, the vulnerability and the shame aspect of like, hey, this is something that I don't like. This is something that I'm afraid of, you know, and then emotional intelligence. Uh, there's a book about, about that started waking me up of even like that kind of thing. So there's always like I'm like searching and like seeking different things, trying to figure out what's going on. And I finally got to a place that in a moment of like slight clarity, I like asked my wife, I was like, I was like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I was like, maybe I'm just a sociopath. And we looked it up and kind of went through it. And we were like, no, like it doesn't really match up. And she was like, maybe you're a narcissist. And I looked it up and I was like, no, not at all. Like whatever. And, you know, just kind of went about my day. And then what I ended up doing is like, ended up going to like um, supplies and friends and stuff like that, making sure I, you know, twisted it good enough to be able to make sure that they would go back and tell my wife, He's not a narcissist, you know, but over a period of time, it started becoming more and more evident because I'd seen the words. I understood what was there, but I didn't want to admit it. And then uh, I got into another affair with a girl who had BPD and narcissistic traits. And that's when the rubber started meeting the road of me seeing my own actions, my own attitudes, my own manipulation, not mirrored back at me, but like actually being done to me. And when I started seeing that, it really started waking up different aspects. 
Two other things that were like influential. I went to a sex addiction intensive, you know, because there's a period of time that that's what my wife thought I had. That's what my boss thought I had. Cause like, there was all this stuff going on. And like, I went to that and really I walked away from it being like, I don't have that. And it was like clear. I was like, I know I struggle with some aspects, but that's not the core issue. You know, I don't have a litany of all these people and I don't have like, you know, prostitutes lined up and all this stuff. So like realize, okay, like that kind of rules out that still the narcissism stuff was kind of in the background. And then I went through a 30 day challenge with a group called wake up warrior. It was a wake up warrior challenge. And going through that, like one of the main things that the guy comes out and starts talking to guys about is to be the man in order to be the man, you have to stop fucking lying. And that's like one of the biggest things that I was like, like, I, I don't have lies, you know, because even though I was living like two separate lives, I didn't want to admit that I had those lies. And in the course of that 30 day challenge, it started transforming my life. And I started identifying um, for me, I started identifying seven different lies in my life that I was, you know, lies between myself, like me, myself and I lies between myself and my wife, between myself and my job, between myself and God, like every single thing was like out there of like, these are lies that are completely changing my perspective and my point of view. So with all that, I ended up getting into therapy. Um, it, from, from the idea of therapy to like actually going to therapy, we're talking like a good like year or so, like it's not like it happened overnight. <laughs> um, and then when I went, I ended up going to EMDR therapy for, mm-hmm. uh, I want to say probably about like six months or so. And that I kind of walked into, I was like, this stuff is stupid. Like, I don't see how this is going to even work. Uh, probably it was like the fourth session or something. There was kind of like a breakthrough. And I was like, holy crap, where did this come from? And, you know, I spent some time with that. That helped kind of clear some stuff kind of like in the background, you know, early on. And then um, got out of that and ended up looking for a psychologist, for a counselor, therapist, like anybody that could work with me. And at that time, I had more of an idea of what I was looking for. I was like, I want someone who uh, is maybe has like some like sex addiction background and has like an emotional empathy kind of background. Like they understand emotional trauma and then has like narcissism. Like that's what I was looking for. And so uh, I went through like four different therapists, three or four different therapists, like a couple that just fizzled out a couple that were like awful and a couple that I got in arguments with. And I'm like, this isn't working. And then I went to this one therapist and I sat down and we had an hour session kind of like intake and like learning stuff about each other. And we got like halfway through and I don't even know what it, what, what it was, but we got halfway through and like, I felt some type of emotion, like some type of like actual, like, like if I sit in this emotion, I'll actually like feel like my eyes welling up or something like that. And I was like, what the crap? I was like, this does like, I don't feel this emotion. Like this doesn't happen. And so right then and there, I was like, this is the person I'm supposed to be with. And so I've been with that therapist now for uh, over a year, uh, every single week. And it's been really awesome, really transformational. She does a really great job, but she's also crazy because she like doesn't just deal with like one aspect. She like dabbles with all of it. Um, And it's been huge. It's been huge on like my journey, trying to really trying to rewire my mind on a day-to-day basis of how I think, how I process, how I interact and how I live. Yeah. And that's so incredible. And it's so powerful to hear such honesty and candor when, from my experience, what I've seen and what I've coached women with is that most people in narcissistic relationships have spent more energy creating, manufacturing, holding the lie. They don't even know where it begins and where it ends. And so Typically, what tends to happen is that when the non-narcissistic person 
will kind of say, hey, you mentioned this or what about that? Or I thought we sat down and and Googled together, but nothing's happened. And then the, the narcissistic person will tend to, from my experience, kind of toggle between did I say that? Did I for sure promise? Mm-hmm. Maybe. And then it becomes something you're doing, or I wouldn't need to be this unless you wanted me to. So I'd love to talk a little bit and hear your perspective on how narcissists tend to kind of weave around confrontation. It's one of the highest things that I see in my practice where women want so badly to just get connected and heart to heart with their man and it's just door after door after door. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could whip out your phone anytime you wanted relationship help from a legit love expert and just got the answer to your problem solved like immediately? And more than a two minute fluffy, you got this. Unlike other love coaches, I go hard in Boxer. My private clients love this perk because let's be real, most of the real stuff happens in between traditional calls. But now, for the first time ever, outside of my high-level one-on-one, I can be in your back pocket. Introducing Back Pocket Love Coach, 30 days private, tailored one-on-one with me, Stephanie. Former lovebirds who snagged this brilliant opportunity got tailored coaching when they needed it, and some of them used it to squash anxiety about dating, how not to fuck up a new connection. Some used it to move through breakups. Some used it to move through healing their own bullshit, preventing them from having the love of their life. Everyone has their own things and I'd love to support you because honestly, stop bugging your girlfriends and actually text a pro. Here's what's in it for you. The best relationship expert, hey, at your fingertips. Mentorship without a long-term contract. Exclusive framework concepts and tools tailored to you that I only reserve for private clients. Confidence in yourself as a woman to actually be in love like an adult. Revived relationships, hotter sex, less bickers, ease in dating, I could go on. What's the energy exchange? One month of private boxer access is 1,000 USD. Find out more at sogood.love or as always DM me, BPLC, to get started. So I'd love to know your thoughts on really how how tough is it to, ha- to hear feedback or a tough conversation, that criticism factor. Right. Yeah, that criticism factor is definitely very, very hard. Very hard for the aspect of you know, it hurts like my image and whether that's my image publicly or my image of how I view myself, you know, that's something that feels like an attack the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. And through like the work environment, I grew in areas where I was able to take more criticism in the work environment, but we're talking like 11 years of that, you know, and um, not just like overnight either. And because early on, like I I wouldn't take criticism for anybody because I knew better. I was better Mm -hmm. at it than anybody else. And so I'd just be like, no, we're doing it my way, that kind of thing. Um, But like in like a relationship, like that's where it gets like even harder because there's different like emotions under the surface, like involved. And so like, from my perspective, a lot of times it was very, very difficult to be able to hear criticism or feedback because regardless of how it's portrayed it always came in my mind as like an attack an attack on me attack on my worth attack on who I was uh, attack on my image really of like I'm not being perceived like I'm no longer a good dad I'm no longer a good father like just a big attack a lot of times is how how a lot of times like criticism comes across yeah, definitely. And I've I've seen that echoed in the work that I've done with men in my practice where 
they have spent so long trying to defend, deny, and deflect. Mm -hmm. And what tends to happen is that rational women get to a point of indifference where they go, you know what? I just don't even care anymore. And what I've noticed in that angle is that their partner will go, see, I knew you'd go. I knew you couldn't handle me. I knew you couldn't take it. And then we go into the discard and replace. So moving along with that, how often do you see the partner discarding versus being discarded? Is it the personality of the partner? Is it a stronger, more rational woman would be the one to leave first and more of a empathetic codependent would be more likely to kind of hold on? What have you noticed in in your work with this? From that, from what I've seen and from the people that I've been talking to or like coaching now for, I haven't been doing it long. So like the past like six months, really. Um, But I mean, we're talking about 300 some people, just the people that I've talked to and the stories that I've heard, I I haven't seen a direct correlation to say, Hey, it's this type of a person. That's amazing. I would say, I would say it's this type of narcissist Mm. because there's a lot of different thoughts and ideas from like the hurt side, from the, why did this happen to all this kind of stuff that a lot of people think that it's about them Mm. when reality, it's always about the narcissist. And sometimes people lose that thought and lose that focus. And so they try to think like, what did I do wrong? What happened here? Why did I, you know, what could I have done better? And reality is like nothing because it didn't have anything to do with you. And so like in regards to like this idea of like the narcissist, like discarding or things like that, it comes across a lot of times with the narcissist that's going to play more of the victim that you see the actual victim is the one that discards right? because of the fact that the narcissist doesn't want to look like that. And whether that's, you know, pressure from family, pressure from coworkers, job, their religious circles, things like that, they'll get to the place where they like, don't want that image of them having the divorce of them breaking Mm -hmm. up with the person. So they'll make their life hell as bad as they can to the point where that person is like, okay, I'm done like that indifference. Like I just can't do this anymore and I'm leaving. And a lot of times you'll see at the very, very end, like we're talking like the last like 30 seconds. It's the last reel of the TV show after the end credits where you'll see the narcissist try for a couple Mm -hmm. seconds. Like, wait, don't go. Like we can do this. We can go to counseling. We can fix this. Like we can read a book together, whatever it is. And and then the person walks off and they're like, no, you had your chance. They walk off. But then in their mind, they can take that story and they can twist it. And then they go to their friends and family and the other people and be like, I tried to get her to stay. And she just wouldn't. Like, I, I tried. I begged her to go to counseling mm-hmm. and she walked out the door. But like, that's how they can twist that when they make their life hell. So it makes almost like a reactive discard in one sense. The person leaves and then somewhere in there, a lot of times they'll try for a quick second or two so they can feel justified in their head to say to other people, you know, hey, it wasn't me. It was all her. And I tried. Yeah, absolutely. And that smear campaign can be a real tool that is used. And what I've noticed in my practice is that the clients that have had to heal from this, when they look back, They can go, you know, the smear campaign started month one when he said, oh, your friend isn't really that nice. And then, oh, your your mom said that thing. And so Mm -hmm. it became about, okay, now my other confidants and allies 
are on shaky ground. So I'm now nervous to share and confide that my relationship feels a little frightening. And so I'm now lost and alone. And who do you go to? The partner who's sort of feeding these ideas or the people that your partner is trying to separate you from. And then as the relationship sort of manifests into this toxic entanglement, the partner then says, well, you know, you were actually this bad and your mom wasn't, wasn't that bad. And all of a sudden they're that now the person being smeared and the friends and family from the beginning, they're like, well, we don't even know what's going on. We had no idea. So the victim is now completely shattered and has no identity. And it's been really crazy to see how manipulative people can, can become in these types of parents. So I wanted to actually ask you, you mentioned going to counseling, which is sort of the last coup d'etat. I'm going to go to counseling. We're all going to go to counseling. And usually by the time a couple says, we're kind of fucked, it's it's pretty late in the game. And, and most people need to be on, you know, we're going to heal together or we got to kind of go our separate ways. But I'd love to know from you, why do you think it's so hard to get people into therapy? Why is there only a... 0.5% diagnosis rate with, with narcissism. Well, I think some of it with narcissism is it's, it's anti-narcissistic to admit anything. So like going to a therapist that's going to tell a person their, their flaws or what's wrong with them, it goes against that perfect image that they're trying to create. So like the idea of like going to a therapist or going to a counselor is, is not something that would meet up in their mind is making sense because a lot of narcissists already think they know better than the counselor. They know better than the therapist and, you know, or you have the victim side of it's not me. It's, you know, my partner, like they're the ones that need to get fixed because I'm not doing anything wrong. So there's definitely like a huge disconnect. I think it's, I think it's really like false advertising out there that people are like, Oh, like so many people are you know not diagnosed with NPD because in reality, like you're trying to put a number on a category of people that have no desire to go to therapy mm-hmm. to get diagnosed. So it's, it's much less like skewing the numbers compared to other disorders out there, like maybe like ADHD that people are like, no, like this is confusing. Like I want to get diagnosed. So I figure out what is wrong. Let me find medication that helps and let me live a fuller life. The narcissist already thinks they're living the best life ever because they're the one in control of their image and of the people around them. Yeah. That's such a good point because I remember looking, um, over my notes thinking like, I, I bet the, the stats are so low because nobody wants to get their butt in a chair because in order to do that, there has to be a reckoning that I'm not doing as good as I think I am. And that crushes the complete facade of the narcissistic persona. Right. Yeah. It'd be, so- like, it'd be like, imagine like trying to convince, you know, a spouse that, you know, they struggle with alcoholism if they're never willing to take like a breathalyzer test. Like if there's, and then, and then you're like, well, you know, they can't be verified. And I think it's hard because with some of that data out there about narcissism, I think it tends to devalue a lot of victims out there because people are like, well, they're not diagnosed. Be like, well, diagnosis shouldn't dictate whether you put up with abuse or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think that especially after the last couple years of you know, the societal shifts that we have seen. Um, I think people have never than ever had more opportunity to learn about themselves. 
um, you know, the TikTok world, social media, sitting at home for two years reflecting, we've seen more divorces, we've seen abuse and addiction skyrocket. And so it's such a beautiful thing to be able to, through a, a painful, you know, recollection, be able to sit down and go, you know what, holding all this weight isn't actually working anymore. And it's not actually effective. And you being able every day to go on to your platform and help not only the victims, but those that are struggling going, you know what, it, it, it's okay. It's okay to have a therapist. It's a power move. And it's, it's so impressive. And we were chatting off, off air about the idea of how narcissism has become sort of this men's illness. And I say this with everybody quotes simply due to the staggered stats of how most men are the ones that are diagnosed. And in women, it presents as BPD and histrionic. And I was just wondering if you were able to kind of touch on that for clarity for some of the listeners who may not have been diving into the DSM all through the pandemic. Right. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a true statement that for diagnosis purposes, at least, that there's a majority of men that are more narcissistic than there are like women out there. Um, I, I think that there's probably like, probably, there's probably more women out there than what we want to admit. Like I, I would, I would guesstimate in my uneducated guess that, you know, it would be more like 25% of narcissists are women versus like people's perception of being like five or 10%. Um, but I think there's a huge aspect of someone who's involved with a narcissistic woman um, is dealing with a lot of different abuse than, than just like a narcissist, because a lot of times the emotions are so much different or mm. are so much deeper or so much uh, more manipulative than what like a male narcissist sometimes can tap into because, mm. you know, sometimes like a male narcissist has the disconnect from the emotions. Sometimes a female narcissist can be fully connected and use those to manipulate other people. And from some of the people that I've talked to that have been involved either with a woman with BPD or a woman with NPD, like there's also a giant aspect of shame that's on the victim. And especially in the male field, you know, there's not many men out there that want to say, hey, I was a victim of her. You know, that that goes against like not even if the guy is narcissistic or not, that just yeah. goes against like, you know, their ego or their masculinity or like they're they're able to be like humble saying like, hey, this happened to me. And sometimes people, there is like a big thing out there that a lot of times people don't see that as being valid of like, mm -hmm. how could that actually happen? How could that be when, you know, I talk to people and again, like I don't have tons of them, but I do talk to people that are involved with their spouse being narcissistic. That's a woman. And, you know, the, the abuse, the manipulation, the, the, the sex, the extramarital affairs, like the stuff that's like paraded in front of them a lot of times is just really crazy. Yeah. And that's, and that's so, it's so tough. You know, a, a lot of my work and the work with my clients is really compassionate. Me and my partner, we have a, a slew of diagnoses ourselves. We're both neurodivergent. We both have come from trauma. There's addiction on both sides. You name it, we've got it. And so being able to sit with your partner and go, you know what, we're better than this. And this is really getting a little wild and not going down to Google, you know, train and trying to diagnose yourself. And we're reading all these articles and 
a lot of what has been painted in the media is this picture of this very malignant, awful, nasty, nasty person and women need to run and the first red flag and go. And while I'm absolutely not advocating for naivete, you know, no one's born, in my opinion, with so much trauma and hurt that they have to shield their own identity and push their emotions down just to survive. I, I think narcissistic humans oftentimes have had no other choice because it worked for a bit. It, it worked for a while. And then when you grow up, ideally, and you have these mature realizations and ideally, hopefully people that support and love you around you, realizing that there's an incongruence here. And the only person that I'm in charge of is me. And it's my responsibility is not easy when you spend your whole life manipulating, cheating, skirting the truth, running away. So I think it's really um, a, a hard line to kind of say like, good work, without also then saying, now let's throw our compassion out and, and everyone support everybody. So in a weird roundabout way, can you, can you help our listeners identify what's the line between recognizing like, okay, this situation could potentially kill me. This is bad mm-hmm. versus this is a good man who's really hurt. And, and I know that through time and patience and continued work, life won't always be like this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tough one because a lot of the times we're told, like, get out while you can, run while you can. But now we're seeing a lot of awareness and understanding that we're just human beings. And a lot of us have had a really hard time. And a lot of us were not taught. So right. what would you tell a woman who is maybe saying, like, I think my partner is narcissistic and I don't know what to do. I think with that, it's it's very key to separate some of the definitions to make sure they understand like, hey, if they're narcissistic and abusing, then that's a relationship you need to get out of right away because abuse is abuse no matter what labels we put around on it, you know? Um, and I think a lot of times people will, you know, minimize and, you know, devalue like the actual abuse that's happening in the relationship. So the other aspect is a lot of times people in when they identify or, you know, agree or figure out like, hey, this is a narcissistic relationship or this person has, you know, traits or high traits or their NPD, you know, when they're in there, there's also a big aspect that they're holding on to hope. And so often uh, I think hope is a great thing, but not when it's being used to abuse you. Mm. So there's a big aspect that people hold on to hope without any data. And that's really one of the biggest things that I talk through with people is trying to deal and try to work through like the trauma bond and like being able to show them like, Hey, like, this is what you're thinking. And this is what you're feeling. Now show me from the facts of what, where that actually lines up. And when they're able to identify like, well, what I've been thinking underneath the surface has nothing to do with what's actually going on because what's actually going on is clear that this person isn't willing to change, isn't willing to try to do anything different. And so there's a big aspect of if you're in a relationship and the other person isn't willing to meet you anywhere to try to work through their trauma, try to work through their pain, to try to work through everything that's going on in their head, the the shame, the guilt, the blame that's going through their body every single day. If they're not willing to even lower that wall a little bit and start to work on it, then there's not really a whole lot of hope. And so that's the fine line that I have to, I have to walk in my platform because 
I am a narcissist. I am still married to my wife. Like we live together. Like we have a daughter, like we are working through that. And it's hard to be able to come on the platform and try to make sure like, in one sense, sometimes I feel like I'm like anti-hope to try to make sure that people don't look at me and be like, oh, like maybe my narcissist will do that. So what I normally try to tell people, I was like, if, if your partner is not showing the ability or the willingness to get to a place where you see them have honest vulnerability and consistent change, then there's nothing there. Wow. Absolutely incredible. So many mic drops. I'm writing this down as we speak. (laughs) This is so fantastic. And it's so true. I mean, so many women tell me like, but we had a really good day or like that, that couple days last month was so, that's who we really are. And it's this concept of potential. And so that was such a really great tangible metric for for women to go you know what I can have this idea that he's actually a good guy it's just been a bad day he was just stressed at work but when the rubber meets the road what are the actions every single day and you know dragging someone into therapy kicking and screaming will not produce the results that you want so I'm so 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 glad that you were able to share in such an honest really, really inspiring way. That was fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely try to make sure I put like disclaimers too, even about like therapy or like counseling in terms of like couples, because there's a big aspect that people are like, oh, like they're narcissistic and they finally agreed to go to counseling. We're going to go together. And what they don't realize is it's different than two healthy people with problems going into the relationship, going into counseling, being like, hey, we're both messed up. You know, we both hate each other in this moment, uh, but we both want to work on this. Mm-hmm. And when you go to counseling with a narcissist, it's like one person is messed up. One person doesn't think they're messed up. They both appear to be, oh, we want to help the marriage or save the marriage. But one's working anti that because of how their actions are. So a lot of times I try to warn people to not go to couples counseling with a narcissist, because all that is, is just giving them ammo to further abuse you. And it's mm-hmm. amazing with the stories you'll hear a lot of times something very common in it. Like one would be a narcissist walking out of couples counseling or completely clamming up, or you have the narcissist like rage or abuse that happens after counseling mm-hmm. where you see, right. They're driving home and he's like yelling at her of like, how could you say that? I can't believe you said that, you know, it's the image, you know, that's getting affected. Um, or like, it'll be used, there'll be phrases and words in the counseling that'll be used to make sure that the other person knows that it's their fault. Mm. You know, see, like they said this, you're the reason why I'm this way because of what they said. And so, especially if the counselor doesn't have any like narcissistic background, stuff like that, like it's definitely like a big red flag for me. So that's why I tell people like, don't go to couples counseling with a narcissist like they need to go to their own counseling like you need to go to your own counseling to like work through the trauma and they need to work on themselves and then when there's a place of like hey you guys are both saying you know we're broken we're working on it and we want to work on the marriage too then that's where you can start coming together and work on that but I mean for for my wife and I personally like it was you know she was in therapy for probably like two years and I was in therapy when you add some of them all up probably like a good nine months or closer to a year before we started doing like couples therapy together. Yeah, that's so incredible. And it's very, I'm really glad you touched on that because I too give clients that same advice. And I also say that 
Um, be very choosy in your practitioner and ensure they are up to date because the amount of stories I heard where the therapist is siding with, with the narcissistic person and the, right. the narcissistic person has worked their magic on the therapist, leaving the victim feeling worse. And it, it, it's, it's absolutely insane to see. So I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that. I wanted to, um, as we kind of wind down, I wanted just to really kind of end with a question that I would I would pose to anyone who's sort of new into this. So let's say, let's say someone crosses your path and says, Ben, I've fallen in love. I've met this guy. Everything was amazing for the first three months. Now we live together. I have no idea what's going on. I'm freaking out. And he thinks everything is okay. What would you tell that person the first thing they need to do would be? I know I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Like it's the new, it's like not like, oh my God, I've been in a relationship for four years and I'm, and I'm in it and I'm locked in and holy shit. He's, but someone who's like really fresh in when there's still potential to maybe make a different decision or change some things. Cause a lot of who we talk about or who we talk to are people that are already in it or kind of recovering or leaving. So for someone who's like, Whoa, like my new boyfriend is starting to appear different. What would the next step be for them? I think one is making sure whether you're going into the relationship or just started that you have clear boundaries and clear like goals for your life, because a narcissist won't view your boundaries as being anything. And they also don't care about your goals. They care about their own desires. And so whatever direction you're going, like if that starts veering, then, you know, you know, this other person is going to play a much bigger role in your life of constructing where you're going to go versus where you want to go. And I feel like a lot of times when people get into relationships, narcissistic, toxic, whatever, they go in thinking one thing, but all they end up doing is giving away pieces of themselves and sacrificing their future dreams. And mm. for, for boundaries, one of the things that I've said for a while now is boundaries have to have clear cut consequences. And I think there's a big talk in the narcissistic narc talk community about people setting boundaries that don't give a lot of clarity or that don't give a lot of info about it. And so a lot of times you hear like set boundaries, set boundaries. You know, for me, I try to say like set boundaries and make sure you have a consequence lined up and that you follow through because uh, setting a boundary without a consequence is literally just like a speed bump for a narcissist. Like they're just going to roll right over it because they don't care. And they don't care if there's no, you know, repercussion, there's no consequence and there's no follow through. Then they're just like, well, like it must not have meant that much to you. So it doesn't matter what I continue to do. So probably my biggest advice when people are in these type of relationships and they're also like, Hey, like, is there hope? Like what's going on? I now have those honest conversations, see where things go, set boundaries. And a lot of times when I talk to people, I'll tell them this, I'll be like, sit down and write down uh, four to six boundaries slash goals. Okay. So like where you want the relationship to go or what you want to happen in that relationship, in that dynamic. Those boundaries slash goals need to be time sensitive. So in a week, six months, a year, and they need to be quantifiable, like yes or no, one, two, three, four, five, six. You need to have concrete boundaries and goals there. So say you come up with six of them, make sure you write them down, hide them anywhere, wherever you have to put them. You come up with six of them, you communicate to the narcissist two and two only. 
you never communicate the other four to your grave. Okay. Because those are the things that you have to know that the narcissist is not performing to keep you, but they're changing to be better for themselves. And so when you set those, Hey, here's like two things that I want you to do. Like, I need you to go to therapy. If you want us to work on this and they're like, Oh, sure. I'll go to therapy. And they go to three sessions. Well, that's great because it met the first criteria, but the third criteria that you didn't tell them is they had to be in therapy consistently for eight months. Boom. There's a, there's a hard line of there's your out. And, and people sometimes fail to set up boundaries and consequences and fail to set up in like a cognitive state of like, hey, this is just the reality of the situation and take some of the emotion out of it. So they can say like, hey, here's the facts. I asked him to get into therapy. He didn't stay in therapy longer than three weeks. So that means he's not interested in bettering himself. He's not interested in continuing this relationship. So that means I pull the cord and I move whatever consequence in place or I move out depending on what it might be. Wow. Honestly, that was a mic drop. Everyone listening, I'm sure you're writing furiously. Those tips were so tangible. I love a good scaled metric because when it's in black and white and written down, there's no room for hope and potential. And you can Mm -hmm. you cut through the deceit and you get real. That's when you can start making changes. Ben, this was absolutely incredible. I would love for you to tell everybody where they can find you if you have anything coming up. And um, this was just so fantastic. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, would love to have anybody, um, if you're interested in talking one-on-one, um, you can contact me through my website, rawmotivations.com. Also, there's a webinar that I'm not going to be a part of. It's put on by Lisa Sunny, which is stronger than before on some of the pages out there. And also I have links in all my bios and everything, but I'm going to be a panelist on that. So I'm kind of excited about that. I've never been a panelist before, but there's myself, another software narcissist and several other coaches, counselor, therapists that are going to be on there about six of us that's going to be on a panel. And the panel title is how to recognize and overcome narcissistic abuse. So we're really excited to be able to have that coming up. That's amazing. And what we will do um, for all the listeners, super excited and now probably going to go binge all of Ben's stuff. We will link all of his socials and websites and that powerful summit. Thank you again, Ben, so much. I'm sure this conversation has opened up so many eyes Congratulations on doing the work and congratulations on maintaining a relationship and raising a daughter. That's an incredible thing. I'm a parent too. It's not easy, but when you have mirrors in front of you, when you have little girls and you imagine like, what would I want for her, for her husband? So um, fantastic work. This was truly incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, lovebirds, there you have it. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed that little pocket of time we spent together. It means the world to me. If this episode landed, if you felt like you got some mic drops, I'd love to know in the comments. Feel free to leave a five-star review as well. That always feels good. And if you know anyone who would benefit from listening to this, send her my way. Today's episode was so good, and I'll see you next time. I'm living that high life.